All right, it looks like we're live. So welcome, guys, to episode number 12 of the Playing to Win series. And if you guys can hear me right now in the chat, just uh, say yes, I can hear you, because I know that YouTube's having a hard time connecting uh, with StreamYard and getting audio working. I see the chat's not working, but it looks like I'm streaming live, so we're good. Okay. Brad, welcome back, brother. It's good to be back, man. It's been a while. Yeah, when I say back, it's... Uh, 2014, May of 20, 2014, we we hopped into your Hemi mm -hmm. after a retreat for Forum. And uh, I mean, we shot the shit for a good hour in the car. I mean, I edited it down as, as short as possible because I realized we talked about a lot of stuff. But um, you were my first video. I, I, I'm I'm pretty proud of the fact that I was your first, uh, Richard. It's, uh, you were my it, first, man. You were my... Uh, you know, you took away my YouTube virginity. <laughs> Considering your current infamy, I, I take that as uh, a bit of an honor. It was an experiment. I, I remember finally, you were, uh, we had just come out of a, a retreat. Um, I think we'd been pressed pretty hard by our facilitator in terms of, you know, defining uh, our future and uh, the retarded dog. I don't know if I can use that vernacular. I think with you, yes. the vernacular is okay. <laughs> And, it's funny uh, because I've created my own forums uh, now, and I was talking about the retarded dog in one of the conversations we had two days ago. Mm. I was explaining the concept of the dog. So um, I guess it was Colin that facilitated that one, right? That's right. Yeah. So um, yeah, let's tell these guys about our little Batman origin story because um, you know there's some newer people here, and there's quite a few that have followed me for a while, and they're wondering you know what, what it is we're talking about and how we know each other. So um, I met you at. Um, a forum meeting through EO. I think Jody brought you into the forum at Ron's office. And um, you're pretty exhausted when you hopped in that day. I think you're just flying back from China from uh, a long trip and we're working on like no sleep over a day and a half. I think that's where I met you for the first time, right? That's right. Exactly true. And that was your introduction to forum? Well, it's okay. my introduction to this forum. I'd been in forums before, but I had been on a bit of a sabbatical um, away from forum because I had been, you know, kind of all hands on deck trying to save my business and had decided I had to uh, limit, um, I guess, just any expenses outside of what was absolutely baseline in Maslow's hierarchy, very similar to where we are today in light of COVID-19. Um, and yeah, I had uh, not been informed some time. And you're right, I had just gotten off of a long flight back from Asia where I had madly been working on uh, product lines, selling our business plan into our international markets, which I came from the toy business. So that's what we did. And um, I was exhausted and I was, I would say emotionally fragile just because so much had happened uh, in a short period of time. And, and I, I remember that meeting because I was so intimidated to be in that group. I, I just, I just remember being overwhelmed by emotion, mm. um, had a hard time speaking. So yeah, it was crazy. So there was some clip, there were some clips that I, that I edited out of the first video. So if you guys want reference what I'm talking about, watch it after we're done talking here, but just go to my video tab and then organize videos by oldest. And the conversation Brad and I had at his truck was from like six years ago, but there was some stuff that I cut out. And I think you were telling um, some stories tied into, cause I mean like the whole point of this playlist that I'm doing just to kind of frame a little bit more for you. Cause I really didn't prep you that much for this uh, call was um, I put this together because I think it came from Colin actually, where he was talking about playing to win versus playing not to lose. Was that, was that from him? 
that was a colonism for sure. Yeah, that's a colonism. So yep. um, you guys will not know who he is. You won't be able to find him pretty much anywhere on social media. He's almost invisible, but he's well known in uh, facilitating entrepreneurs retreats to help them level up and break through their BS and call them out on their crap. But um, there's a difference between playing to win and playing not to lose. And that's why I named this uh, playlist playing to win. At some point, I got to get Colin on this too. But um, in life, we've both played to win and we've played not to lose. And I know from from the early get-go, I think some of your early businesses you were talking about when you were living in Alberta, I think you were in uh, forestry or you're in uh, creating courts of firewood or, or something like that. And then your yeah. wife financed your first business, was it? Like she, she got into debt basically to help get your first business off the ground. Was that the toy business or was that something else? That was the toy business, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how much you want me to do. You want me to talk about that at all, or do you want to? We got ninety minutes, man. We're you know, so we got okay. lots of time to get on. I read yeah. into me. That's why these guys are here. They want to hear yeah. all about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, so going back to the origin story, though, belaboring that point, I was always entrepreneurial. But um, you know, I grew up in a family. My father was a chiropractor. His father was a chiropractor, as well as his mother. And my great grandfather was the first chiropractor in Denmark. So ever since I was like this high. People have said, when you grow up, you're going to be a chiropractor like your dad. And I just kind of nod and said, yeah, I'm going to be a chiropractor. And I just kind of went through the motions thinking that's what I was supposed to do with my life. But I knew that that was a head decision, not a heart decision. Um, and, you know, at a very early age, I had entrepreneurial tendencies. And what you're referring to is I actually had a woodcutting business. And to this day, I talk about the perfect uh, setup of that business. You know, it was my dad's truck, his gas, his chainsaw his splitting mall and uh, endless access to crown land, which at the time you go in and harvest trees. And, and so it was all his equipment. And I just would go on at that time. That was before the internet. I could see in the paper that they were selling a quart of wood for 65 bucks. Well, I'd offer 60 bucks knowing my overhead was me. And, um, and, uh, and, and we crushed it. I basically financed all my adventures as a kid doing that. Uh, my dad thought it was awesome and just kept letting me do what I was doing. And eventually I started hiring my buddies and, you know, uh, we, we would, uh, after school on weekends, we'd be, man, we were in great shape. Splitting wood is no joke. Um, so that was the very, very first business venture I got into. And kind How of old were you then? That was like teenager, right? Like late teens? Yeah, that was when I was 16. So just old enough to drive. In Alberta, mm -hmm. which is where I grew up, uh, you know, once you turn 16, I mean, if you didn't have your license within two weeks, something was wrong with you. That was just kind of right of passage, right? So I get the um, feeling that most guys in Alberta, like as, as soon as you can reach the pedals, you're pretty much driving if you're in the rural area, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no doubt about it. I, I have fond memories because I grew up, my, my parents had an acreage on my grandfather's uh, farm. And I can remember driving the truck into the field when I was like, you know, maybe 10, 11, 12, like early, early ages that they just, it was a part. If you, if you were capable and had uh, the ability to help, they wanted you to help. And so uh, machinery was just a matter of learning. It wasn't the mm -hmm. age, age gate. It was like, are you competent and capable to run this thing? Okay, here you go. Take that truck, drive that out to your grandpa and get him his coffee and uh, his lunch. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was it. So that was the first business, but then leaving from that, I mean, you met your wife quite young. When did you guys get married? Yeah, so met my wife when I was 19, when I was in school to be a chiropractor. I was mm -hmm. married when I was 21. Um, but the best thing that came from going to school to be a chiropractor is I met my wife. Um, you know, um, I, I consider myself very lucky. Uh, and, you know, the luckiest thing for me was finding uh, a life partner. I, I say that the two most important decisions you can make in life are who do you get married to and who do you get in business with? And that that first one at 19 to run into my um, 
my soulmate who we've been married now uh, 25 years. We just celebrated this past year and 27 years together. Uh, what an incredibly lucky sort of turn of events. And um, she actually, I can blame her for actually accelerating my entrepreneurial journey because um, you know, I was about to go finish up my chiropractic school, but I had to move to another part of the world to do it. And she basically told me, gave me this ultimatum saying, hey, you know what, if you do that, I don't think I'm interested in a long-term relationship. She just come through a, a situation with a boyfriend that hadn't worked out well on that. So I decided to hang out for a year and a person who's got entrepreneurial tendencies sitting around uh, tends to get themselves in trouble or um, start new opportunities, which is exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. And the uh, debt that she took on to get the business off the ground, what was that business? Yeah, so I um, I started a toy distribution company. And um, it came because I've always been a big kid. My wife accuses me that I still might be one. Um, we all are. <laughs> we all are, right? Yeah. I think that's, you know. The only difference when you get older is once you start, you know, making a little more money, you buy bigger toys. <laughs> it's true. The toys change. Yeah, I, I say to people all the time, I want to die young as late as possible. Yeah. But stay young at heart. I think that's really key to really uh, embracing the whole life experience. But yeah, so um, I started, I basically negotiated the rights for product lines for Canada because most Americans at that time that I was dealing with kind of looked at Canada as just this annoying country up north that they, you know, their, their business was in the States. And so I just found this opportunity to, um, to, to carve out a niche in a space that I was interested in. And um you know, the problem was, is it's distribution companies are t cash intensive. You got to buy inventory and then you got to ship it up and then you got to sit in a warehouse and you got to sell it. And, um, you know, I started off as a carny. I literally was going to fairs and carnivals and across the country trying to hawk these different things that I had the distribution rights for. But it was an amazing uh, crucible for learning the, the art of negotiation, the art of sales, the art of marketing and, and how you take a product and, and tell stories with it. But yeah, my my wife. I mean, she she had the she was the responsible person who was employed, who had a, a steady paycheck, and I was, of course, the one with the the potential uh, to maybe create something something great. So she was absolutely the person who funded those early endeavors and got that company up and running. Cool. And what year was that? Because I know you had, I think it was one or two bankruptcies with, with business with toys. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I tell people I'm on my seventh startup now, which we can talk about later. But along the way, I've had two crash and burns, several uneventful pivots, and one exit that uh, turned out pretty well. Okay, say um, that again a little bit slower. So you had two crash and burns, uneventful two, pivots. Several uneventful pivots. Yeah. One sudden but uh, good exit uh, is, okay. is how I would describe it. Uh, I tell people a sudden exit with a soft landing. So um yeah. And we can we can talk more about that in, in a bit, but yeah, so I mean, not all rainbows and butterflies. Then eh? you're not <laughs> <laughs> you're you're not eating an apple and orange and a banana and shit in a fruit salad here. Like world, like you know, the world's not perfect for you. No, you know, and I think that anybody who would get on your show and actually um, would just talk about all these great things that have happened to them that that none of us are interested in that story. Uh, mm. I've come to learn that you know. Uh, mastery is on the mountaintop of mistakes, and I've made them all. I mean, I have a PhD in DUMB tenfold, <laughs> right? So I have definitely made many, many mistakes along the way, and and some mistakes I had to relearn. Unfortunately, you know, they're, yeah. so they're extra expensive when you have to relearn them. Um, but yeah, so I started my first toy company uh, in '94. 
distribution company incorporated in 96, um, scaled that business quickly, primarily because there was this change in um, distribution structures. So there used to be a bunch of toy companies in Canada that were acting as distributors with these big overheads. And the Walmart effect was starting to take hold. And a lot of these guys just were getting pushed out of the marketplace. And we had a revised distribution structure that was just more nimble and lean and uh, more efficient. And so while they were dying, we were growing. And I would say, actually, it's a great metaphor for what's going on today. And we'll talk about that, no doubt, in a minute. Um, but there's always opportunity in adversities. There's always a way to take the obstacle and turn it to your advantage. And I think that uh, at that time, we were like in a great place with a great idea. And that company uh, at that time was called Dynatech. Um, we grew it from zero to just under 25 million in sales by 2006. We had been on the profit 100 list in Canada, which they don't call the profit 100 anymore. I think they called the growth 500 because they discovered most of the people on the profit list weren't profitable. They were just growing with no profits. Mm -hmm. So um, anyways, but we were on that list four years in a row. I had uh, won several awards. I was nominated for Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Uh, I mean, I thought I had tiger by the tail, um, bull by the horns, and that things were um, going exactly as planned. In 2006, we had a record year. Um, I went to Mexico on vacation with my family at Christmas. Uh, got back from that vacation thinking like, okay, we're going to like double down again, and we're just going to get after it. And uh, within 90 days, we were in special loans. And what I learned the hard way is that you can grow too fast. Um, and this is something I think a lot of entrepreneurs are confused by. But the, the hard reality is that most businesses die from choking on biting off more than they can chew rather than starving on lack of opportunity. And the distribution company, as you grow it, you know, you can see how the, the cash constraints become uh, increasingly challenging because you're buying goods up front. You put them on the water and they now come from China. You put them in a warehouse. You sell them to a retailer who takes 90 days to pay you. Well, to grow that model just requires a ton of cash. And the bigger you create the business, the more cash you need and we literally came out of a record year thinking you know high five and thinking things are great but the bank's like actually you tripped all these debt to equity covenants you're underwater in your margin and you're I mean, they just went through all this list and we're now throwing you into special loans and um what does that mean just explain special loans for those that don't know what that is well most people are probably familiar with special ops when it comes to the military it's like an elite group of people who are really really gifted at being able to take out the bad guys um, special loans is a similar group of bankers. <laughs> they, they are micromanaging your business uh, to the nth degree and controlling every single receivable, payable, everything that goes through is under control. And um, you are not allowed to pay bills or uh, we well, can deposit the money, but they've got all the money locked down. So you can't do anything without their permission. And so it was literally, you go from, you know, working on, call it 90 day business plan down to every week your business plan is being revisited, your cash flow is being revisited, your receivables and payables are under control. And most businesses die there because they just are given no uh, permission to do anything anymore to continue to grow the business or get it out of its um, uh, its difficulties because it's being locked down by- You're not uh, in the driver's seat anymore then, right? Like basically the bankers are? That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 So that resulted in um, a bankruptcy, which happened in 2006. And, you know, uh, for people who may be grieving and going through some loss in this current crisis, um, I can tell you, 
as an entrepreneur, my identity was attached to that business. I had birthed that business. Oh, yeah. It was just a part of who I was. You know, I had hung, I had some ego attached to these accolades and awards and all that stuff that now I see is just crap. But at the time it was like a part of who I was. And literally I was, I was brought to my knees and, um, you know, adding insult to injury, um, you know, we were a fast growth company and uh, because we're fast growth and we're from small town, Alberta, we'd attracted a lot of local interest. So I had actually brought in about a million dollars of the friends and family money, which now that's all underwater. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so going back and, and doing family Christmas has suddenly got a completely different dynamic, but you know, I went from feeling like a hero could crush the, you know, unstoppable and to a complete zero and, uh, you know, challenging conversations pretty much on a daily basis. And, you know, while I, I, I consider that, um, now to be something very difficult i can there's been enough time that i look back at it and i say this was actually a really important thing for me to go through and not just go through it but grow through it mm -hmm. it became my inconvenient blessing like it was totally inconvenient but wow were we ever blessed as we went through uh that process um, yeah and then you went through round two after that toy company um didn't work mm -hmm. out and you created another toy company that was tech for kids. And that's when I met you. Well, yeah. So real quickly, just to get to that, cause I, I here, here's, what I want to double down on is that there's a lot of people who don't believe, um, there's a lot of, I, I would say miss, uh, information about there about never quit, never stop, just mm -hmm. keep going. And, um, I was that sort of person that said, Hey, I, I, I can fix this. I can, you know, I wasn't willing to step back uh, and and surrender. I was in the denial spin cycle. This is another colonism. And I just was going through my own Groundhog Day that, hey, I can fix it. I had a growing company. I can fix it. If I just get more money, I can fix it. So when it when it went into bankruptcy, I found a, um, a local uh, merchant bank who backed me. I bought the assets. They put $3.5 million of cash in. And I was trying to resurrect the same business model without taking the time to say, hey, maybe just the model's broken. Maybe it doesn't make sense anymore. Maybe there's a better way to do things. So I took two years, two more years <laughs> of figuring that out and uh, then found out that it was also broken. And so mm -hmm. bankruptcy one, 2008, bankruptcy two, or sorry, bankruptcy one, 2006, bankruptcy two in 2008. And, um, and that was when I finally came to the surrender piece that, okay, this business model is is really broken. But not only had I had all the loss from the first bankruptcy, the one million dollars in friends and family, you know, millions of dollars of shed losses to the banks, um, but now I had this added uh, burden of another three and a half million dollars of merchant bank uh, debt that I was personally guaranteed to. That kept mm -hmm. my wife very motivated. By the way, she loved it when they came knocking the door and tried to collect the house. That was an exciting day. Um, <laughs> Hey, and can I just pause for a second yeah. on that part of the story? Because sure. um, there's a catchphrase that um, I put out not too long ago, and uh, your marriage violates it. And I'm not saying that I'm wrong here, but uh, generally speaking, and on a balance of probabilities, women generally don't care about a man's struggles. They hang out at the finish line and they pick the winner. So you went through two bankruptcies over a couple of years. Um, 
what was that like in the marriage? Like, did your wife ever say, you know what, Brad, you've got 90 days to figure this out. Otherwise I'm out. Yeah. Um, the answer is no. I, uh, I joke that, you know, my wife was probably saying under her breath, I married you for better or worse, but not for this bullshit. And, um, <laughs> you know, like, honestly, I, I think it, it really comes down to without being gender specific, it's the person beneath that, that, um, you know, the one thing I will give her eternal credit for is she has truly been, um, a, a partner in the, in the holistic sense. In other words, when things got difficult, instead of going into the fetal position and just saying, Hey, I'm, I'm out, which should have happened. Like I, I put up my hand to say in most situations, most guys going through this situation, their their significant other would probably have hit the eject button um but she doubled down on we're gonna do this together we're gonna work through this together we're gonna go through this and grow through this together and you know i would say the the stability of how that happened number one is we were uh very aligned spiritually we very much uh believe that you know we're spiritual beings having a physical existence and we are really grounded in that, that, mm-hmm. you know, God gave us a purpose and through us being together, we're better than on our own. And then secondly, we just communicate a lot. And that communication wasn't the basic bullshit. It was like raw and real and getting vulnerable and making sure that you're always cultivating um, uh, fresh conversation. There's this, this mythology out there that most people think that, um, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And I found it's greener where you water it. Mm-hmm. And the problem in general is that in relationships, you know, your, your partner will only ever give you at most 80% of what you truly want and need. The problem is we focus on the 20% we don't have. And if you stick in, you know, where your focus goes, energy flows. And mm-hmm. if you're focusing on that 20%, you're going to eventually have some kind of derailment. And mm-hmm. so, body, yeah. you know, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And to anything, this adversity actually helped us grow, I would say more together. And, um, maybe that defies the norm, uh, probably does, Yeah. but I, I believe that that is, uh, yeah, there's no doubt that it does. I mean, this is, this is unusual. It's, it's, it's not often that a marriage, you know, survives two bankruptcy over two years. Like you go from hero down to zero in a matter of no time, you know, like women don't usually have a lot of patience for that, especially as you get older, like they'll have more patience for it when you're younger, but as you're an older guy and the runway is running out on the airstrip, they don't, they don't nearly have so much is what I've noticed anyway. Um, Let's go back to the business story. So uh, second round bankruptcy is around 2008. Um, You saw that the old business model was broken. Some of the choices that you were making were getting you the results that you were looking for. Your belief system was slightly broken. Um, Did you, did you take a look at Colin's model of results, choices, belief system? Like how did you, how did you um, remold your beliefs in your business as you kind of went into Brad 2.0 with the next toy business? Well, look, I think the one thing, so the answer to to use Colin's stuff at the time, probably not directly, but indirectly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I think you and I subscribe to this worldview of being lifelong learners. And that is one thing that I truly uh, have always believed in and always practice is being grounded in in ongoing learning. Mm -hmm. Um, I think where I got to as I reflect on it now is I did go to a place of surrender and then the ability to go back and review my belief system. And then, you know, question whether or not I had made assumptions and uh, that were incorrect 
and then the ability to then choose again and start a new future. So I actually, the best thing I did is, <laughs> well, my, my merchant bank business partners, who of course uh, I owed three and a half million dollars, not to mention the one million to friends and family, um, basically said, you need to go away and figure out how you're gonna fix this. And because um, they knew that collecting on the, the personal guarantees was not gonna be very um, profitable for them either. So I took a sabbatical, I literally just pulled out of the business and took some time and I went away and I just needed to get clear, you know, instead of working in the business, start thinking all about on the business. And, um, you know, I revised the, the business model. I completely shifted. We went from being a toy distributor in Canada to a toy manufacturer. We focused on international versus just Canada. We focused on uh, specific categories, specific licenses. We just got really clear on um, the new direction. And the really helpful part of that process actually was getting clear on what I didn't want. Because oftentimes we say, what do you want? Mm -hmm. And it's hard because it's like, there's too many choices, right? So the constraints that I find are that help you make better choices is when you actually are forced to say, well, what don't I want anymore? Like, let's just get clear on that. And when you start saying, I don't want this type of, I don't want to have a warehouse with millions of dollars of inventory. I don't want to have Walmart be 40% of my business plan. I don't want to, you know, just kind of going around. And then suddenly it was like, wow, okay, I'm much more clear now what I do want based on putting those constraints. And um, we put together a new business plan. We put it in front of them. Shockingly, they agreed because quite frankly, usually good money doesn't follow bad. Like if somebody's underwater, three and a half million, they typically would say we're, we're done. Mm -hmm. They agreed to give us another million bucks. Um, and the crazy part of that story is that it was a million dollar loan at 24% interest, which is crazy now that I think about it. Unsecured or was it secured? Secured again, right? Against what, like the business, the house? Like what are they secured against? Everything. Assets? Personal assets, the house. So, <laughs> Whatever I mean, they could put a lien on. <laughs> it was, you know, there was nothing of mine that I owned outright anymore. And, okay. um, and that business funded literally two weeks before the recession 2008. Yeah. If, if that had not happened, I'm not sure I'd be telling you, oh, no, I wouldn't be telling you this story today because, you know, it was, um, the markets dried up, there was no money. I mean, and, and of course, you know, so we're like going, oh, great, we got this money and now we can go forward with business, but oh crap, we owe a million bucks on top of the three and a half plus the million to the friends and family. And it's got a 24% <laughs> interest rate on it. Um, but man, were we motivated. And actually, I will tell you what was so awesome about that period, just like right now, is that our competitors were frozen. Like the entire landscape had totally froze up uh, because fear had gripped the market. And when there's uncertainty and fear, people stop moving. Mm -hmm. And in our case, you know, I wasn't trying to like create abundance. I was just trying to get out of pain. I was just like, I was so far into one. I just want to get back to zero, but I worked like crazy. And in within a year, we had actually paid back the entire loan plus interest. And we suddenly had the traction. The business model had worked and we had traction. And I quite frankly, don't know that that would have happened at any other time, except for in 2008, when all the competitive landscape that we were um, working in was frozen. And I thought it was interesting that of the, you know, Fortune 30 companies, 16 of them, over half of them actually started during a recession or depression. Yeah. It's and I would, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Same thing should be happening right now. People that have been, you know, toying around in 
the business world and creating their own uh, business or solving a problem, this is this is a great opportunity for it. Most people are freaking out though. Like most people are just losing their minds, hoping the the government's going to bail them out or that check for a thousand dollars shows up so they can pay their rent. But you know, chaos is where opportunity um, is mostly born from. You know, it's that whole fireweed thing, right? Hundred percent. Yeah. I mean. We have this discussion all the time with my uh, my co-founders, and I am so excited. I mean, it's tragic what's happening. Obviously, the COVID virus is a, is a terrible calamity, but this is the greatest time of opportunity since 2008 for entrepreneurs, for problem solvers, for people to come out and do something. Because we're, we're motivated by two things, only two things, hope and fear. And fear is the bigger motivator, and fear freezes us, right? And right now, if you're tuning into the news, which I don't, if you tune in the news, you will be gripped and consumed by fear and you'll just stop in your tracks. Hope is the thing that drives our moving forward motion. And, um, you know, to the extent that you can feed that and continue to, to, to build it, you can at least take steps, even if they're the wrong steps, at least you're moving and taking steps. Whereas everybody else, to your point, is frozen. They're not, they're not doing anything right now. This mm. is the greatest time to make meaningful moves in the marketplace right now. Yeah, that's so true, man. All right, so that was like 2008-9. I think I met you around 2012, 2013, and around then. 2012, I think it was or so, a couple years mm -hmm. later. So so you're running the toy business for a couple of years now. Um, e even a few years into it, when I met you in that forum, you were still really, um, I'm going to say, like you were always edgy very early on. You're always super, um, you know, concerned about walking on eggshells with, um, you know, like you're not a walking on eggshells kind of guy. Like you've got an opinion, you've got a backbone. I mean, you came from a chiropractic family, right? I mean, you've got a backbone, but you always seemed a little bit edgy early on when I first met you. And it wasn't until the years kind of piled on and you're, you're putting out more products and you guys started to develop your own products. I remember this one product that you're super hyped about that unfortunately didn't really take off the way that we had hoped it would. It was that, um, what was it? The tech recon gun, the one with the rubber band mm -hmm. that you put your cell phone on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah so, yeah. so I mean, like you started to develop your own products. Um, I think that you ended up being something like the number two or number three toy company, either in the world or in North America, was it? No, uh, in Canada, we in were, Canada? yeah, we were, we, we had, um, so there was a lot in that in terms of just, you know, the edginess. Um, I mean, honestly, dude, I was, uh, in PTSD. Uh, I mean, I had come back from the war. I had, you know, worked through two bankruptcies and, you know, uh, bootstrapping a, a yet another company, uh, from a scarcity position where we were just trying to get back to zero. Mm. Um, trying to pay back uh, investors, trying to get to a place where I could be in a position to uh, cure up friends and family. Um, it was just all too much. Like it just honestly was, was really, as I reflect back on it now, it was really emotionally challenging. So when you say I was like a bit skittish and maybe um, hard to Yeah, skittish down, is a good way to put it, yeah. <laughs> that... I, uh, I was, I was there. I literally had shell shock and, uh, was trying to, you know, also self-worth. I mean, you know, I had an enormous amount of shame that was associated with what had happened. Like, I was like, Hey, I was, I was the whiz kid in my town. I mean, they, the local paper in Alberta was writing stories about, you know, our company and the things we were doing. And, you know, we were, bleeding edge and you know disruptors yada 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 all that stuff and and you start to wear that and then suddenly you go from 
you know, fame to shame. And um, it just was, I, I think every one of us uh, wakes up every day and has a certain element of imposter syndrome that we're never going to get over, quite frankly. We can only subdue it by just taking actions, right? It's like, what do you feed, right? What are you feeding in your personality and in your character? Um, and many of us put on bravado and, 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 you know, try and show that we're, you know, bigger than the problem. But beneath all that, mm. we're actually, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of challenges and, and questions. So, um, when you, met when you me say, when you say what you feed, um, there's a line that I've seen used in movies before. It's, uh, there's one along the lines of the wolf of uh, light and the wolf of darkness sort of thing. And, mm. you know, the question yeah. is, well, which one wins? And the answer is, well, it's whichever one you feed, right? Yeah. Is that what you're referencing? Hundred yeah. percent. There's a there's a battle for your emotions. There's a battle for your mind, and it's not like it happened once. It happens every single day. Mm -hmm. Every single day you're going through, uh, and even as I was listening to some of your interviews with some of the various folks you've had in the on the channel, I think it was Aubrey. Was it um, Aubrey Huff? Yeah, he's a yeah. first base player for San Francisco. Well, he was. Yeah, and I just you know I I, I so related to his story. You know, he he here's the guy who makes it to the major leagues, which is, makes him a very rare air individual, um, wins World Series, uh, you know, goes from all these winning moments to suddenly uh, he's, he's an outcast uh, for whatever reasons that he, he talks about. But the idea that suddenly, you know, if you're waking up in the morning and questioning whether you should be alive, that's a self-worth issue, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're just, <laughs> you're, you're dealing with demons, which we all have that basically are saying, hey, you're not good enough, you're not big enough, you're not competent enough, or maybe someone's gonna figure out you really don't belong here, mm -hmm. right? That you mm -hmm. somehow lucked out and that you didn't really um, do what was necessary to get here. Um, Did you ever get to the point where you were, um, you know, like suicidal, you were like, this just ain't worth it, this is not gonna work out? Like, did you ever have those thoughts? Not really, um, I mean, I, I can't say the thoughts never crossed my mind, but never to the extent that like when he was telling his story and, mm. and actually having the same gun that his, his father w uh, was taken out with um, in his hand, I, I never got to that point. But certainly was there moments I thought, hey, I'd be worth more to my wife dead than I am alive? A hundred percent, you know, and, and uh, that was definitely, you know, when you're going through the crucible of the of the, the difficulties of the time, there was no doubt that that you really, it, it challenges who you really are and mm -hmm. the character. Um, so, um, okay, so we're, so we're skittish. We got uh, Tech Recon, big, big buildup to that. Didn't really take off. There's a few other things that you guys put out that were really cool. I mean, you had a, you had an awesome office. I remember the times that we had uh, forum meetings in your boardroom. It was just like, um, to kind of frame it for you guys, picture, Picture a decent sized room, like a squash court sized room with walls covered in all the toy products that you're either making yourself or distributing or have the rights to distribute. And it's like a it's like an adult man's sort of playhouse sort of thing. Like like it was a it was a really interesting um, business that you had going on at the time. And I mean, talk about the exit and how you left that and, and where that went. Sure. So you talked about Tech Recon. That was just one of many products. So the toy business is, um, is they actually say that the psychological profile of people who actually are in the toy business is not that different from people who go to Vegas. And it's true because every year you're basically reinventing your business. Kids are very fickle. 
um, their, um, their, what they like and what they're interested in changes quickly. And so while you have a hit this year, uh, next year there's no guarantees. So you always are starting over with something new and fresh. There's very few legacy brands and toys. There's of course the Fisher Prices, the Barbies, the Hot Wheels, but quite frankly, outside of a handful, most things don't last that long. They come and they go. And as a result, you see massive elasticity. You see companies like uh, friends of mine had a company uh, based in St. Louis uh, that was doing about $10 million a year, you know, decent sized business, but nothing too great. And they came up with a product called Zuzu Pets, which if you remember those little hamsters that went around in the cages. So in one year, they went from 10 million to 600 million and became one of the top toy companies in North America. And, you know, but just like the elasticity, what grows up fast also goes down fast. Mm -hmm. Literally a few years later, they were back down to a small company again. So, um, you know, we, the, the point of this story is that you're constantly firing bullets. You're constantly trying things. And when you see that it catches, then you unleash the cannon. So, you know, early days, we, we tacked onto a lot of third-party licenses, meaning we were working with Disney, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, a number of the key um, broadcasters and children enter entertainment brands. Mm -hmm. We started developing toys and then categories and niches around that. And um, our biggest breakout was a product line called Mashems and Fashions, which um, if you go on YouTube and actually type in Mashems reviews, I last checked, I think there was close to 500 billion views for um, videos of kids opening, um, doing unboxing. Like on YouTube, if you don't know what's happening there, video game watching, people watching other people play video games, blows my mind, but that's the number one activity on YouTube. And number two is people watching other people unbox products, which primarily is toys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's crazy, but we were early adopters to that. It drove our business like crazy. And then once we had that baseline success, we started to branch out into these other things, which TechCon was one of them. We had a number of other brands called 3D Magic, was like a mini 3D printer. Um, we had, um, uh, uh, I don't know, long legacy of, we did snow sleds. We, I mean, like you said, there was a big showroom full of stuff and, and several, we had uh, several success stories, but I would also say they're usually the exception, not the rule. So if you're in baseball and you're batting 300, you're a great batter. That means you're striking out seven out of 10 times. Well, mm -hmm. the toy business is kind of similar. Like out of the 10 product launches, two to three are actually what's going to be meaningful uh, to drive your business forward. And um, what happened is that after we launched Mashems and had success and started to uh, see momentum, the people who had been along for the ride with me suddenly wanted to see an exit. I mean, you know, if you have outside investors, well, here's one of the things I tell everybody who's thinking about bringing in outside capital. The day you decide to bring an outside capital, you agreed to sell your company. Because mm -hmm. at some point, those people are looking for an exit. And um, so we started going through a process of trying to find partners to um, potentially sell a company to. Uh, we actually went through three separate due diligence, the longest being with a public company from Hong Kong who took 11 months of due diligence. And uh, in the end, we walked away from the deal because I, quite frankly, was I'd made up my mind there was no freaking way I could work with these guys. Um, but we got to a place where suddenly, you know, it was clear that we weren't going to get a clean exit in terms of people just coming and buying the company. So I um, I had started a conversation with another toy company here in Florida, which is where I am right now. And actually one of the blessings of me actually having a place in Florida is because of that whole opportunity. But I'd started a conversation with them and uh, they were similar size. And we, you know, the other founder was uh, a cool guy. He had built a company called Playlong Toys back in the early 2000, had a pretty significant exit over a hundred million. 
And, um, and, and he was saying, hey, there's a real opportunity to do a mergers and roll up uh, play in the space. And why don't we merge our two companies together and then, you know, reduce our overheads in terms of we can, you know, create more efficiency and then go and seek out other acquisitions and roll it up. And on paper, it was awesome. I mean, it seemed like a great idea. And, uh, and also through the process, uh, we started courting private equity and uh, institutions to help fund the growth model. So 2017, we uh, merged our company with this company. And, um, you know, I, I've since come to learn there's no such thing as a merger. There's only acquisition because only one culture is going to prevail. Mm -hmm. And what I was choosing not to see uh, through this transaction, again, because I was motivated primarily by a financial outcome, I was trying to get my uh, partners made whole through the process as well as an ability to finally get some liquidity after years and years of scarcity. Um, I was just looking past the fact that we were culturally completely <laughs> misaligned. And uh, so we merged. Is this something that you vetted for before you guys even had the conversation about merging or was it not even consideration because your partners wanted to get out of it? You know, honestly, Richard, I was choosing just not to see it. Like yeah. I really, I knew that there was differences in the way that we were wired, but ultimately I was choosing that I was just going to not go down that path. And, um, I just didn't, I was in avoidance of saying, Hey, this is going to be, uh, a problem for the culture. And, yeah. um, so I went from being a majority shareholder in my company, you know, I'm just going to step out of my deck because yeah, uh, it's, it's back. There's vacuuming happening next door. And I just feel like, uh, Besides, the view out here is better, so you can see there's... Yeah, give us a quick peek of the view there. You're yeah. right on the beach. Not bad, right? Yeah, social distancing in, in this part of the world doesn't suck, for sure. Um, <laughs> so, uh, let me just sort of fast-track the story. So, I went from being a majority shareholder in my company to a minority in this new company. So, from Tech for Kids to a new company called Basic Fund, based here in Florida. Uh, we actually, in the process of actually, we added complexity to this because we actually acquired a company along the way, a company from California called Uncle Milton. Uh, if you remember the original Ant Farm and um, uh, Star Wars Science Toys, they were the makers of that. And we also were in the process of doing acquisitions in other places, the whole roll-up M&A plan. And, uh, but I found out that when you go from a minor majority to a minority and you have a board of directors that uh, you're accountable to, that... Uh, if they see that you aren't playing nice with the other uh, founders in the business, that they can vote you off the island. And that's exactly what happened. I remember going for coffee with um, our chairman on October 30th, 2017. And I had an agenda of everything I wanted to cover, which one of the topics was, hey, me and um, the co-leader uh, from the other firm, we're just, we got, we got to work through some challenges. And I said, is there anything on your agenda? He said, yeah, just one thing. What's that? letting you go <laughs> <laughs> so you became the steve jobs of the company you founded huh? they, they basically fired you from your own business you know it was uh how did that feel man how did that feel was that like heart drop sort of thing or yeah like I, well, it, it, using the word surreal isn't even described i just remember being in shock yeah and i remember saying you can't do that and they said yeah yeah we can yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, they would have, they would have had a few conversations with their legal team before they had that drop on you. Yeah. And it was, it was ugly. I mean, you know, they had locked me out of my email. They locked me out of the office. I mean, they didn't, they didn't oh, do it. Hostile. It wasn't even it friendly. Was, it was not friendly. No, it was, it was exactly, 
the, the way I never would have expected it to have gone. It was yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. so that was 2017. Mm-hmm. So you got so you got forced out of your own business. I guess they paid you out whatever you were owed. Well, that would so that's a story on itself too, and there might be a couple lessons because uh, I don't even think I've shared this with you. Um, so the answer is, you know, there was some liquidity through the merger. So from a financial perspective, I was I was fine. I wasn't really worried about that. Um, and then during that uh, that breakfast meeting where I was being fired, I actually said to them, "So I guess you're going to be buying me out." Mm-hmm. And he actually said, no, no, you can just kind of wait for the, you know, some kind of a liquidity event in the future. Because the goal was we were going to do an M&A roll up, grow this thing to 500 million and then go public by 2025. That was the overarching vision. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went away, uh, got treated like an outsider. Fast forward um, a few months, I had some great mentors and advisor and the key here is make sure you surround yourself with people smarter than you um you know your average of the five people you spend most time with and you should try to constantly up your game there try and push yourself to get around smarter people so some great mentors and advisors helped coach me through the process and um you know look through my shareholder agreement said hey you actually have the option to sell your shares like Mm -hmm. you can sell your shares and there are private equity groups out there who would buy a minority stake in a growing uh thriving entity Mm-hmm. So I decided to go to market and sell my shares. Mm-hmm. And when my other shareholders uh, heard that, they disliked the idea that I might choose uh, a new business partners for them. And it kind of forced them to the bargaining table. And nice. um, it was... Uh, this must you know, have I been like 2017, right. 18 or so, because when I left the forum that I was in with you, that was, I didn't even hear about that. That, that was just after I had left then. Yeah, so this is uh, 2018, January 2018. I'm with my wife down in uh, Scottsdale. Um, I've got the term sheet from my my business partners to buy out my shares. And I'm sitting there and I'm wrestling with it. Because remember, I'm a little bitter that I got treated by so poorly by my former partners. Yeah, it's hard not to be. And I'm like, I know I can, you know, this is a good offer, but I know I can do better if I go to private equity. And I just remember, again, the... Um, this is the benefit of having a life partner who can give you some common sense. I remember her just saying, let it go, Brad. They get the best of your worst. They get none of your future. Move on. You spending time here is just going to continue to put you in places of scarcity and anger and resentment. Just let it go. And I just looked at her and said, you're right. And I signed the term sheet. They had a 30-day window to back out of the deal because, of course, I knew what they were doing is they were going to market so they could see if they could sell my shares and make an arbitrage on it. And, of course, they had to raise some money because the number wasn't insignificant. Um, And uh, 30 days passed, and we're like, now they're locked and loaded. So that 30-day period was uh, February 28th of 2018. Two weeks later, so remember I said there was two weeks before the recession in 2008? Mm-hmm. Well, two weeks after that 30-day closet run out, Toys R Us went into liquidation. Mm-hmm. And Toys R Us with 30% of the business. <laughs> wow. So it was, uh, I am so grateful that I listened to my wife so, and he did that advice. So there's a um, story, like, did you go to the E.O. Whistler University that I went to with Ron? I don't think you were there on that one, were you? No, I didn't get to that one. 
So that one had Kevin O'Leary as one of the speakers. And one of the takeaways from um, that conversation was he said, you always want a sober second thinker in your business, in your life. And that conversation that you had with your wife was a sober second thought. Like I always tell my friends whenever they ask me about my business, um, my brother's my second so sober thinker, right? Like I've come up with ideas to do stuff in the business. He's like, uh, this, this is not, this is not a good one, man. You should not do this one sort of thing. And I don't always listen to him. In fact, I probably don't listen more often than not, but the times that I have that sober second thought to the craziness that I had going on in my head to try to execute on was certainly valuable. So it's a good lesson for you guys watching to always look for an opportunity to have somebody that's got a level head on them, has some skin in the game, and can offer a sober second thought on important decisions in your life. 100%. Yeah. Um, okay. So you got your exit. What are you up to these days? Yeah. You know, um, there's, a, there's a story of, of uh, a fellow named John Newton. And I'm not sure. I'm getting a little bit of wind feedback from your uh, mic. I don't know if you can pull back into the corner a little bit or if there's a brief. Yeah. Is that, is that better? Yeah. 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 So do you know who John Newton is? No. Okay, so quick story, just it relates to my story. John Newton um, was a slave trader and uh, he was off the coast of Africa, caught in a storm. And um, during that storm, he got down on his knees and prayed to God and said, God, if you save me, I will devote the rest of my life to actually helping abolish a slave trade. And miraculously, he, he lived and he followed through on his commitment. He went back to, um, to England. He teamed up with William Wilberforce who's the founder of the Salvation Army, and together they collectively abolished the slave trade in the uh, English Empire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people may not know that story or know his name, but you certainly will know his legacy piece, which is he's also the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. So next time you listen to Amazing Grace and those words, maybe you can get a sense of where he was coming from in terms of, you know, who he was when he says a wretch like me, um, and kind of his finding his new future through that disruption that was forced on them, very similar to like what's going now. So I, I had a forced disruption and it was uh, unplanned for, I didn't foresee it, but as I've talked about it now, it was such an inconvenient blessing. It was inconvenient at the moment. I hated it. I didn't love what happened, the way it happened, the, the people that did it to me, but man, did it ever free up my ability to be a part of a new future. And so I was always a little conflicted about um, what is it that, you know, we did in the toy business, we put smiles on kids' faces for sure. But the way that we did things, the way that we manufactured, um, and I always had a very strong environmental um, position. In fact, I tried to launch a toy line back in the, in the 2000s uh, that used um, uh, hydrogen cell uh, engines uh, to power toys. And, you know, it was something that was just baked right into kind of my, my ethos of who I was. So... It just so happened that um, Matt Bertulli, who is, uh, he's, a lot of people may know him because he's a savant when it comes to digital marketing. He had a firm in Toronto called DMAC Media. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a brand that he was invested into called Pila, and that's Paul. P-E-L-A. Now that I'm a pilot, Richard, I spell it Papa Echolima Alpha. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey uh, can I share the site on the screen with these guys watching? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. All right. So Pila.Earth or PilaCase.com. And um, really what it was is there was a founder out of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, who had uh, um, 
just through his own life journey, decided there must be a better way to use um, uh, waste products and to have things return responsibly to the planet. And he uh, came up with a, uh, a, you know, he decided to turn into a phone case. And we'll call that just kind of dumb luck because, you know, as it turns out, the phone case industry is massive. Um, most people don't realize that uh, phone cases are $20 billion a year. <laughs> so it's like, really? Uh, you you know, always need new ones every couple of years too. And this is it, right? Every couple of years you're getting an upgrade and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect situation in light of the fact that, you know, the phone cases are, um, they're made out of a material that is not sustainable. You know, it's going to last hundreds if not thousands of years. Um, and, um, you know, you're changing out every two years. So anyways, he had created the product but didn't know how to tell the story. Matt is an expert at telling the story. And Matt and I were in a forum together and we were sitting, uh, this was after my exit and everything else that happened, we're sitting around talking and he's like, man, I got this project on the side, it's my muse and it's taken off and I don't know how to scale it. I mean, we're running out of, we don't have the uh, ability to make a product where we don't have the right people. And he was just going through all these problems and challenges that he was going through. And I was like, well, I can do that. And I know how to do that. And manufacturing, yeah, pretty much got all that nailed down. And uh, the more we talked, the more we real realized that there was really an opportunity. Um, but to the credit of how we started is that the very first thing we did after just coming through a partnership that didn't work is we took the time to invest into, number one, we got personality profiles just to see how we mesh together from a disc perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, we started with the, the why and the how. So it was like, what is the vision for this company? You know, what, are, what is our mission? What are our values? What do we believe in? We went right to the core of that stuff. And we came through that all feeling really comfortable that we could, um, could work together. And, uh, and so I'm one of the co-founders in that company. My role there is the chairman. Mm -hmm. That's the CEO. He's an incredibly gifted, talented uh, CEO. And he's really, really good at driving the, the company. And he understands- You're talking about Matt, the mountain biker that I met at Jason's dinner? That's right. Matt okay. Mountainbiker, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly right. Okay. In fact, we both met him at the same event, the Mastermind Talks. So here's the crazy thing. That Mastermind Talks in Napa Valley, where you and I were at, um, Matt- oh, I remember that. Yeah, that was that was an interesting time for you privately too. That was, uh, <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> right, that was an yeah. interesting time. Um, and um, also the... Uh, Jeremy, who is the creator of the actual uh, case, was also mm -hmm. um, at that event. So the three of us uh, collectively were introduced. Canadians all met in Napa Valley, and yeah. um, it's crazy. So and this is why, guys, I always tell you, you need to put yourself in better rooms. If you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. You need to put yourself in a room where you look around and go, wow, I feel dumb today. 100%. That's where the growth happens. That's where you find the opportunity. So, so that's awesome. I mean, that's a great story. So that's, that's the main po um, project right now. Are you on anything else or? That's it. You know, I, um, I, I'm really enjoying the sort of, you know, when I came through this, I'd spent almost 30 years of my life uh, working at Redline. And, you know, when you're running your, your car at Redline, it doesn't do well. Um, mm. And my life was at Redline. And the three things I kind of landed on, again, having this disrupt got me the ability to get perspective. And I said, you know, there's sort of three principles that I'm going to live by now. Number one, life plan before business plan, which I had never done. And I to this day will tell you I struggle with. I, I still 
tend to be, uh, I'm a struggling workaholic who gets sucked into the vortex at times, but I'm working at trying to find more balance. Um, second is, uh, life is too short to work with assholes. Only yes. work with awesome people. 100%. You know? Yes. Energy vampires, Can't eliminate them enough. from your life. Can't and stress that enough. The third was impact. I only wanted to work on things that truly made some kind of meaningful impact. Um, Dent you know, in the universe? Yeah. I mean, more yeah. money in my bank account, honestly, it's, it, it should just be a representation of score, but it, it's not changing my lifestyle. I'm, mm. I'm living a life that I feel is fully abundant. And uh, if more zeros end up at the bank account, great. But I would much rather start working on the legacy piece of how can I be more responsible? How can I ensure that we leave a legacy you know, to our kids and to our kids' kids, because we didn't, you know, inherit this planet from our ancestors. We're the stewards for our children. And so to the extent that this company is fully aligned with that and is baked right into the ethos of what we do, it's so congruent with who I am and what I want to do. Do you feel like you're playing to win right now? Or are you playing not to lose? We are so playing to win. I, uh, I mean, we just came through our, our, our quarterly planning session with our leadership team. So just a little bit of context, I mean, Pila is a direct-to-consumer brand. We have been breaking into retail. We've grown very quickly. We raised some capital last year from a VC firm that was uh, Jay-Z's fund uh, called Marcy Ventures. And we did that because we wanted smart capital at the table and people that would allow us to access influencers. Um, anyways, I mean, we've, we've been aware of COVID for some time because our factories in Asia have been under lockdown and shutdown, and we've been actually, you know, helping prepare and support them. But Point being is we just came through this leadership uh, meeting. We had our like one word opener where everyone was at and everybody sitting across the table who put their words in at the beginning of the meeting were words of abundance, words of hope, words of opportunity. And uh, we see this, um, you know, Matt started DMAC Media in 2008. I started Tech for Kids in 2008, which was a time when, as I said, everyone else is frozen. Your competitors are stuck. No one knows what to do. Now is the time that you, by taking steps, can actually make meaningful uh, gains in the market. So, um, I feel playing to win is exactly where we are. I'm going to, um, I'm going to do this cause, um, I usually run this for 90 minutes. Do you have another 30 minutes to go? I have about 10. Yeah. Um, you broke up for about five seconds there, but I heard you say you got about another 10 more minutes. 10 more minutes. Okay. Let's, let's do a couple of questions here. Um, this guy here in the chat, I'm going to post the join link. So you guys have 10 minutes. If you have a question you want to ask, I'll pull you in the stream. You can ask it live. So that's it there. You've got 10 minutes to so do it quickly. Um, how do you push through those overwhelming emotional moments in life? Any tips? Man, uh, <laughs> such a great question because you're overwhelmed. Um, uh, here's the thing that I've come to learn is that gratitude and scarcity can't live in your mind at the same time. Whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed, I have to stop and remember what I'm grateful for. Um, and it's, it's easier said than done. I'm going to be the first to say that, you know, stopping, taking a moment, taking a few breaths and just thinking about what you're grateful for. But we always have something to be grateful for. I mean, I tell people that if you were born in North America, you won the lottery. You are such rare air people. Um, if you had a meal today, maybe two or three meals today, you, you are super wealthy. Um, the challenge we have as a society, and that's part of the reason why I opted out of being in social media, is that we're constantly comparing up. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we're constantly looking at what people above us don't have versus, you know, the abundance that we have relative to everyone else in the world. So my encouragement there is just, you know, it's always gratitude where I go whenever I'm feeling um, that I need to give myself a, a checkup from the neck up. If you could, um, I mean, you've got kids that are around the same age as when you started this business. So they're in their early 20s. I mean, what advice have you given to them? I mean, I was going to say, what advice would you give to yourself if you can go back in a time machine? But what advice have you given to them? Well, here's the thing. Uh, it's, it's another great question uh, because I would say early on, my mistake is that I was trying to be too prescriptive with my kids. And what I've come to learn is that we all have our own journey and we all have our own process to go through. And um, as much as I want to give my kids advice, I know that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Mm. So I've, um, you know, if I could tell them something when they're ready, I would be saying, be a lifelong learner, be curious, just never quit pushing the envelope of learning. That's a part of what will help you continue to be the best and brightest version of you. And be kind, be honest, do the right things, live with virtue. Um, You know, you you were speaking about Kevin O'Leary and I heard him do an interview and, you know, the word success is such an ambiguous, uh, you know, thing because, you know, what is the definition of success? And the best definition I heard was from Kevin O'Leary. He said, it's freedom, freedom to live life on your terms. And I've thought long and hard about that and thinking you're, he's right. But I would add to it two things. Number one, grounded in virtue, because if somebody wins a lottery, you know, they're free, but they can still be an asshole and do all kinds of stupid things. And, you know, money just amplifies who, more of who you really are. So more money giving you freedom doesn't necessarily make you a good person. You'll do dumb things with it. Um, so having virtue in terms of the way that you live your life. And second is that you are grounded in a way that gives you the ability to thrive. In other words, beyond money, there has to be spiritual, emotional, physical well-being. You have to make sure that you're, you are touching all those buckets with it. So freedom grounded in those two things. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to let you go because I know you got to get ready for your next call. Um, dude, thanks so much for hopping on and sharing that experience. That was a awesome one. Uh, if you guys are watching, this is the first video. There's a bunch more on the playlist, um, similar kinds of stories. Everybody's kind of sharing their own experiences when they played to win in life um, and a lot of the obstacles that they come up against. Uh, actually, before you go, I got one more question. Um, a lot of guys uh, love to embrace a... A bit of a victim mindset these days is what I've noticed. I mean, I I pick up on it more from my perspective because, you know, I put out a video and there's comments and, you know, people are feeding back, right? So I'm paying attention to what they're feeding back on. And there's a lot of guys out there that are that are practically hopeless and where they're at. They don't feel like they have any opportunity. There's always something crushing them where they're at. Um, I mean, you kind of touched on a little bit um, a few moments ago, but what advice would you give somebody that's that's like, just literally saying to themselves, I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to check out F it. It's not worth my effort time or anything like that. What advice would you give to a guy like that? A young man like that? Cause there's, cause there's a good chunk of men out there that I've seen these days that are just throwing in the towel. Like they, they don't want to deal with chasing excellence. They don't want to deal with women. They don't want to deal with anything. Look, the greatest, uh, the greatest failure is someone who checks out the person who doesn't continue forward. That doesn't mean you keep doing the same thing and making the same mistakes. That just means that when you are finding adversity and finding challenges that you pause, maybe the best thing for you to do is just take a break, just take a breath, sit back, look at it from 30,000 feet, reanalyze it, and maybe try a different angle. 
Um, but I, you know, there's a difference. People have to understand there's a difference between failing and being a failure. Yeah. You know, failing is getting knocked down and we all get knocked down and we bounce back from it. That's just part of the life journey. Um, being a failure is when you get knocked down and stay down and you don't get up. And then, you know, there's a great book out there called Resilience by Eric Gretens. And he has a, a, a quote in there that I love because he talks about, you know, to be truly human, there's a few things that you need to survive. You need food, you need oxygen, you need companionship, you need water, you need shelter. But I'd add to it struggle because without struggle, we can never truly evolve to become the, the, the best and brightest versions that God intended us to be. And that only comes through going through this crucible of refinement. And uh, as much as we hate it, all of my best gifts as, as in terms of who I am and the opportunities I've been able to become, I've been only because I've been willing to go through the challenges, go through the fire, get knocked down, get up again, get knocked down, get up again, and just getting back after it. So. Love it. All right, man. Uh, I'll let you go. Hopefully this uh, COVID thing blows over real quick so I can catch up with you soon and hop on a flight and hang out. But uh, yeah, get back to your gig. Uh, say hi to the missus and uh, appreciate you, man. You too. Big Cheers. Guy. Thanks, brother. See ya. All right. Uh, before I wrap up, guys, real quick, just going to uh, shout out to channel sponsor, uh, Grondike Soap, Tactical Soap. So if you've enjoyed this uh, broadcast, it really helps me continue to you know put out this sort of content. Uh, I'll put it in the link below after I get off the broadcast, or you can just go to coopersoap.com. Uh, you can check out with coupon code Cooper, get 10% off, pheromone infused, handmade soap and beard oil. Uh, check that out. Also, quick announcement. Uh, Rule Zero is the Saturday on my channel. We're going to kind of dive a little bit more into um, one-itis and the stuff that ties into that. And I'm doing another playing the win tomorrow since we're all on lockdown and there's no <laughs> opportunities really to go out and do a whole bunch right now. Uh, doing a playing the win tomorrow with Andrew Tate. Uh, so the 27th tomorrow, I think we're going to kick off around noon. So I'll create that event after I've done this show and promote it on social media. So you guys have it there. Make sure you hit subscribe, the notification bell, all that good stuff. See you guys in the next video. Peace.